Welcome to episode four of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection, one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. We record each episode immediately after we watch each film. I'm Adam Urich, joined along with Jim Massessa. And today we're watching Brazil. Jim, why don't you take us away with a uh, little bit of info about the movie? The Criterion synopsis reads, In the dystopian masterpiece Brazil, Jonathan Price plays a daydreaming everyman who finds himself caught in the soul-crushing gears of a nightmarish bureaucracy. This cautionary tale by Terry Gilliam, one of the great films of the 1980s, has come to be esteemed alongside anti-totalitarian works by the likes of George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, and Kurt Vonnegut Jr. And in terms of set design, cinematography, music, and effects, Brazil is a non-stop dazzler. Uh, this film was 142 minutes long. <whistles> Barely felt a minute past 140. Color, English, filmed in 1.78 to 1 uh, aspect ratio. And if you're following along at home, this is Criterion Spine number 51. Uh, this was not my first time seeing this film. This is part of my collection. I actually owned the DVD before I purchased the Blu-ray from Criterion. You didn't own the Criterion DVD. You owned the regular No. DVD. Actually, the DVD was given to me as a gift from a female from my past who will remain anonymous, but it is... Remain anonymous or nameless? Uh, I think I guess she's not anonymous now because I just... Yeah. Referenced her. So nameless, I guess. Right. There you go. I nameless. think that's what you're looking for. Nameless. Yes. Nameless. Yes. Or hairless. I'm pointing at my head. You know who you are. Okay. Okay. Well, with that, let's talk about the movie. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Adam, this was your first viewing. It was. Uh, it was. What did, uh, top of your head, what do you think? Uh, well, it definitely was directed by Terry Gilliam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I liked it. It was really weird, but in a, in a good way. Weird doesn't always mean bad, but I think if you're going to make a, a dystopian movie uh, or anything dystopian, it's going to be odd. I, I've always, I, what I always like, I mean, this movie is made in, what, what, did, what did you say, 1985? Yeah. So I always liked how, uh, the way that, and you saw this, like, even in Back to the Future, which isn't a, a dystopian Sorry, although Back to the Future Part Two is dystopian, oh, yes. so I guess if that's that's the the movie that I'm referencing. But about the way that technology is kind of the way they looked at technology in the future, right? And you all the TV screens are really tiny, and they have these gigantic <laughs> like magnifiers. Yep. This idea that the TV screens just couldn't be bigger, and but I do kind of like it. It's this mix of old and new, where they're using typewriters to type in computer, you know, into a computer, right? Um, tubes and they're using the, yeah the tubes uh, and the the old school even um, uh, uh, Lowry has the uh, uh, like the old old school phones operator where he has like moving the switches right like, literally yeah. doing he has like a little mini switchboard that he's putting the the plugs in to to make his phone call so I kind of like that type of stuff and and knowing from I mean I knew before we even watched this movie that because it was from Terry Gilliam I feel like his movies are always I say this. These are always dirty. Does that make sense? Like gritty? No, not gritty. Because I feel like gritty is different. Dirty meaning where just things are not clean in the movie. If okay. you know what I Messy. mean. Messy. Uh, like grimy. 
Okay. Grimy, I think, is a better way to say. When you it. say dirty, people might think. No, I don't mean dirty, like, like as in. Right. Yeah. No. 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 I meant like filth. Right. Like in terms of no, I dirt, you. mud. Like it's yeah. it's grime that's on the walls of things. Everything. Nothing is clean in the movie. That's true, and it was kind of messy too. Things are not organized. Like just because you have a lot of pipes and tubes in your house doesn't mean they have to literally come out of the middle of the ceiling and go like yeah what was what was with the ducks so that's like <laughs> played up really so that they really call that out at the very beginning of the uh of the film um you know that the ducks are what, what was he talking about like you know oh they had the commercial for the central service Hi there. I want to talk to you about ducks. Do your ducks seem old-fashioned, out of date? Central Service's new duck designs are now available in hundreds of different colors to suit your individual taste. Hurry now, while stocks last, to your nearest Central Service's showroom. Designer colors to suit your demanding taste. But that's all we really. I mean, the central service plays they throughout the go throughout the movie, but we never actually get like a legit reason as to why why there are so many of them. Right. What's the deal? Like, is it is it hotter outside that they need air conditioning and that the ducks need to be running through like people's houses like that? I, I mean, obviously, it's not that important. It's just sort of this like sub yeah you know, this kind of way to put other things and uh, plot lines into the film. I kind of get the impression it wasn't just air. You know that. Remember, it's like 85, so there's no there's no wireless anything. You know, everything is wires and, and pipes. So all the technology that they had in their house, you know, there's like a TV in every room and all this other stuff. There had to have been ways to get all that uh, into there. So I, I don't know. I didn't really think about it this time, but the first few times I saw this movie, I just assumed a lot of those tubes were really just carrying wires and pipes and other things. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. Uh, I did like at the very beginning when we have that kind of flyover that it sets it up, but it just says some somewhere in the in the 20th century. Yeah. It doesn't say like a specific time frame or anything like that. Just like somewhere in the 20th century. So it's just not only time, but place. Oh, that's true. Did they ever say where this is? No. I mean, I th- you, can, um, you can infer that it's taking place in... England somewhere simply right. because uh, everyone has a British accent, with the exception of uh, uh, Robert De Niro's character Harry and uh, and Jill and Jill. They're both Americans, and they all work at the Ministry of Information, which is not an American thing. No, it's a Harry Potter thing. The, <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> I kept thinking that. Yeah, so I think it's interesting to have um, the you know the whole the. What kind of starts this movie is the fly falling down right. and into the into the typing machine, and it somehow makes it change from tuttle to buttle, which is what sets this whole thing into motion. Um, and interesting that we never go back to that guy, that character in that room. I kind of was waiting. Buttle or tuttle? Buttle. No, 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 not. Oh, the guy who kills the fly. Yeah, yeah. I was waiting for us to at some point see him again or gotcha. go back to that room but um but we never did but not not that it's important but uh 
Yeah, and I did. When they go to his house and they kind of break in and they saw that perfect circle in the ceiling and they drop down, uh, I thought it was funny when the, when the guy is kind of reading her and he's like, oh, he has been invited. I hereby inform you under powers entrusted to me under section 47, paragraph 7 of Council Order number 438476 that Mr. Buttle, Archibald, residing at 412 North Tower, Shangri-La Towers, has been invited to assist the Ministry of Information with certain inquiries and that he is liable to certain financial obligations as specified in Council Order RB stroke CZ stroke 907 stroke X. Sign here, please. <laughs> and it's like, hey, he's not really being invited. He's kind of being forced to... Uh, forced to go it's being carted away yeah <laughs> you got nothing you got nothing it's such a I mean, if you've never seen this movie you need to need to watch this movie it's it's just so odd uh it, you know everything about it is just it's not really taken seriously i feel like even in their own world it's almost not taken seriously uh i mean people are well it's it's taken seriously to the point in which the seriousness is absurd yes it's getting to the point of, it's to the point where procedure is just completely absurd in and of itself that they're just wrapped up in the procedure or here's a form for your form for your form and make sure here you get the sign the receipt for the receipt and here's my receipt of your receipt so it's sort of just that way of, I mean, that's a very... It is Terry, um, Terry Gilliam. It's a very Terry Gilliam. It's a very Monty Python yeah. type thing um, to just have a play on absurdity and, you know, with the words and stuff like that. Yeah, I kept thinking of the, uh, there's that Monty Python sketch where he's trying to return like a dead parrot to a... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's ridiculous, but it's ta- kind of taken seriously in the sketch. And I always, you know, a lot of the scenes in this film gave me that same impression um but yeah (laughs) i don't know i i have such a hard time like thinking of like when when this movie came out like it was this i don't know if you went to see this in 85 would you be thinking like look at these amazing effects look at this like real picture of the future or at the time were you also thinking oh this is like completely absurd like it, that's not going to happen in the future. Yeah, I don't know. I was like just born in 1985, <laughs> right. so I you wouldn't really be like able to. Two years old. But I mean, you had like Blade Runner and um, yeah, I'd... and and even Back to the Future. I mean, well, Back to the Future came the first one came out in this year, so you did have that. Um, but did you have was Time Bandits before? Time Bandits Time was Bandits before, before this. This? Yeah. this was the second one, and then I forget. Say so sometimes. Oh, there's the. The Baron... Baron Mun- Munchauser. Munchauser, yeah. That's like the, the trilogy of yeah. these. I remember hearing about yeah. Trilogy of absurdity or something. And right, well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, this did kind of remind me of like a crossover or some weird conglomeration of Blade Runner and the Hudsucker Proxy, if you've ever seen that Coen Brothers movie. I have not. Um, because that's also another very like bureaucratic type movie. It all revolves around the film or the company, the Hudsucker, mm-hmm. Hudsucker Industries. So there's like a big mailroom scene. There's like the papers going every, it's, you know, it's very similar. And a lot of scenes, this movie made me wonder about movies that came afterwards. Were they trying to mimic parts of this movie? Because they just really jumped out at me like that. Like the mailroom, the samurai, that giant, is that a samurai? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really get it's like the, that. the ancient armor 
thing that reminded me of the movie Sucker Punch, where she's fighting a giant samurai. Same. Yeah. Um, the singing telegram. Clue with the singing telegram girl. I am your singing telegram. Wow, I was singing telegrams. It's silly singing telegrams. How many times, how many movies have you seen that have a singing telegram? A bunch. I can't name one off the top of my head, but I've seen them. Suspicious. And then Sam's mother, she's wearing an outfit at one point um, with a shoe on her head. She had, a, she had a couple outfits with shoes on her head, but there was one that was leopard print with a shoe on her head, and it reminded me of Chris Tucker's character in The Fifth Element, who is wearing a leopard print outfit with a weird thing on his head that sticks out, kind of shoe-shaped. I don't know. And that, I mean, that movie, to me, is, you know, it's a weird dystopian future, a lot of pipes. You directed The Fifth Element. Uh, oh, what's his name? Not Terry Gilliam. No, no, no. Oh, he did 12 Monkeys. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, Yeah, what did he just do? He just did something that I bought. Well, anyway, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Well, no, that's it. I mean, that is interesting to see. You you would, you would, I would guess that in some cases, this movie would have influenced some of those scenes. But there's a lot like there's, you know, I mean, the description talked about um aldous huxley so it's like a brave new world kurt vonnegut um which i guess would be cat's cradle most of what he wrote was dystopian like yeah um and 1984 so there's a lot of that uh in uh in this movie a lot of that dystopian stuff you know it'd be interesting to see i'm trying to was just trying to think like even in the hunger games is there stuff that's kind of you could even consider drawn from this but i guess not it wouldn't really be the same thing um yeah no Luke Besson, by the way, did uh, Fifth Element. Luke Besson, okay. Um, um, I was, so Sam Lowry is um, Jonathan Price. So immediately, yes. his name came to me later on as we were watching the movie. But when I first saw saw his face, I was like, oh, the villain from Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> the James Wow, Bond. that's the first thing you thought that's of? That's the first thing I saw, <laughs> thought of. And I had just, I have just recently watched that movie. It was on like something for free and I was watching it like a, you know, and um, it was in the background of me doing a bunch of stuff. Um, but yeah, I just remember that because he's like trying to build that like worldwide, uh, you know, TV or like right, all right, media right. conglomerate. That's the one with Halle Berry in it, right? No, no, no. That's um, World is not enough. World is not enough. Dang. Tomorrow never dies. Is there's an Asian woman who is the uh, 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 who's like the Bond girl? Yeah, I don't really remember that one. That was the sequel to um, Wait Goldeneye. Wasn't Denise Richards in one of those? No, that was um, not the world is not enough. Um, Wasn't Goldeneye? Oh no, no, I'm sorry. Denise Richards was in the world is not the world is not enough. Halle Berry was in the one with the big ice palace. Yes. What was that called? Was that a diamonds one? No, I thought that was Tomorrow Never Dies. No, no, no. Tomorrow Never Dies. No. There were only three with uh, 
there are four. Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, and whatever the Die one is. Die Another Day. Die Another Day is the one with Halle Berry. There we go. Boom. We no. just named all yes. those without looking anything up, by the way. Yeah, so, boom, uh, look at that. Yeah. Talk about Pierce Brosnan, James Bond movies. There, there goes the show notes. I got to <laughs> type all that up now. Uh, yeah, so that was the first thing you thought of. I, I think a lot of people recognize Jonathan Price from um, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Uh, at least some of the younger people might recognize him from that. He is... What, oh yeah, a, he's the Elizabeth's lesser. father. Yeah, that's true. You know what? I didn't even think about that oh, until geez. you just said it. I immediately every time I see him, when I saw Pirates of the Caribbean for the first time, I was like, ah, the guy from Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what. I, I mean, I think I watched that movie probably like fifty times when I was uh, that came out when I was younger. So yeah. it was kind of like a cool. It was a cool action movie. Because um, at you know, Goldeneye came out. Goldeneye was amazing. It turned into an amazing Nintendo sixty four game. Absolutely. Um, and um, so then the sequel, of course, was Tomorrow Never Dies, which was also awesome uh, in that time period. You go back and watch it now. Uh, not so much. Um, I still like the Pierce Brosnan. I mean, Tomorrow Never Dies the and Goldeneye are great. And the writing's a little cheesy. Um, but, I mean, you're not going to see another movie where they're driving a tank down the streets of uh, Moscow. Um, well, that's not true. Well, so uh, going back to that first scene where we see... Um, Sam Lauer, he has all those inventions in his apartment. Yes. And um, that immediately reminded me of uh, Back to the Future and Doc's inventions, that opening scene when he has everything. And down to the T to where the inventions don't work properly. (laughs) And that was just so similar to each other. The coffee machine, the toast. Yeah. I I even wonder, like, was there... They came out at the same time, but... Was there something where Robert Zemeckis saw this? Because I feel like Robert Zemeckis would have been more influenced by Terry Gilliam than Terry Gilliam being more influenced by Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, Back to the Future did come out in 85, right? Yeah. That's crazy that both of these movies came out the same year. Right? They don't even seem... I mean, to me, this seems much older. Brazil seems much older to me. Uh, It's... So, but I know that this movie took a while to get made... Like, to, to... took a while to get released the way that Terry Gilliam wanted. So to it could have been released. filmed much. I did like, earlier. I remember looking some of this stuff up or reading about it and seeing something about how, um, he was invited to USC, I think to show he, he was invited to USC to do a film class and he was allowed to bring a movie and he brought the movie and showed the whole thing. And then it became this whole thing. And some film critics saw it and like gave it, best picture for the los angeles times or whatever and then that's how the movie got released the way he wanted it to be released wow um but i'm wondering because i know usc yeah i think robert zemeckis went to usc so it's possible that somehow he saw like in some way he saw this movie or saw and like that influenced it but could just be a weird coincidence but it's so on the nose because it's things to it's also like the alarms go off and it's the getting ready in the morning inventions that don't work. Yeah. Cause like that or yeah. Yeah. I mean his, his alarm did not go off in the first place. Right. Like he overslept. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, what do you think about all the, uh, the posters in this movie? Yeah. I, I liked them. them. They reminded me you what? I love them. Oh, they're the, I would love to get like a couple of them. They're I was so thinking cool. the same thing, but like, you know what? You could easily get stuff that was that, at that those posters that actually existed because they were 100 percent 
you know, you could have popped a World War II yeah. poster into that in one of those scenes and nobody would have known the dis- difference because they're so on the nose for those things. Like, you know, the what was the one poster said? Like uh, the one about the parcel. Yeah, the parcel, mind the parcel, eagle eyes. And then, the, of course, she has the parcel in her hands. I thought that was kind of so that's something that I noticed. Funny. I didn't notice until about halfway through because I was writing down the names of the posters. And then I'm like, I think the posters are kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen in the scene. So there was the one with the parcel. It said, mind the parcel, eagle eyes can save a life. And then literally he asks her then, oh, what's in the parcel? He uses the exact same word parcel. And then she's delivering the parcel and, you know, he suspects it's a bomb. So that kind of goes with what the poster's telling. Uh, There's another scene where he is in his cube mate's office Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. the guy next door. Uh, and there's a poster on the wall that says, who can you trust? And no, it was not his office. It was his buddy, Jack. He's in Jack's office. And there's a poster that says, who can you trust? And just shortly after that, Sam says to Jack, trust me, Jack. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. I, I'm t- I totally agree with that. I think I noticed that, too. And um, I, that definitely was intentional. And then uh, let's see. Don't suspect a friend. Report him. That's on his neighbor's, um, his cube mate's wall. And I'm almost positive his cube mate reports him um, to his boss because then in the later scene, he's standing with the boss, kind of like grinning in the background. I don't know. It just seemed uh, clever. If that if that's what he was actually doing, um, Terry Gilliam, I think that was a, a clever. So that that's one thing I did. And I like I got to the point where I stopped because there's just so much like with a Terry Gilliam film. Does you just see the way like if you sit there and watch a scene, so everything is there for a reason. Yeah, and you just look at some of the stuff like it's so out there and so different. I'm just like who like how did he come up with this stuff? Like what is going through his head? I mean, I've seen a, a, several of his movies, and you just you're looking at everything going on in there, and it's like amazing set set dressing and. Um, set design costuming is great you know like the props are all awesome it's, uh, it definitely goes in there's a lot of a lot of planning going into every single i mean a shot that's like you know three seconds and there's so much going on and you don't even see that seat that set anymore i mean it's it's just insane i think that's what makes him a great director is he just you know he goes all out and there's all these little things in there to pick up on yeah, I like the uh, the scene where uh, Sam is going to the Buddle res- residence to deliver the check, and there's the kids playing outside in the in the alley, playing, mugging their their friend. Uh, I think they were supposed to be playing. They were. Yeah. They were. You know, they had like fake machine guns. And oh right, holding right. Holding up yeah. their friend, uh-huh. and it's like it's all kind of just happening while Sam is doing his thing. Um, but it, it definitely was all happening for a reason. There's a kid in the background with a gas can and a book of matches and like, I don't know. It was, it was very clever and I, I didn't really pick up on that the first time I saw this, but, uh, I thought it was kind of funny. And then later Sam's car burns down. Was it the kid with the gas can? Was it Jill? Was it that weird guy in the alley? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. There were, yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of like extra people 
that didn't show up that I there were almost like red herrings. There's the one guy who kept like smoking in the yes. corner and then he got like bumped into by Sam when he was running down the steps. And I saw him in at least two scenes before that. But then I didn't see him ever again. So I don't know if it was just this idea of creating almost like this set of paranoia for you by like there's just people watching you and people watching you and you're not really sure what's what's real, what's yeah. fake. You know though at the at the end towards the end where um they're reading off all the list of like infractions Mm -hmm. that Sam has committed. Somebody had to have been compiling that from somewhere. So it makes you, well, you're all under the whole place is under surveillance. Yeah. So it's, I I heard that an alternate title for this movie was actually thrown out as 1984 and a half. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty on point to me. Yeah. It's kind of a play on that. Um, very noir esque, um, literally like big, there's no big brother, but there's definitely big eyeballs that pop out of machines that are mm-hmm. watching you. Um, yeah. Uh, you think this was uh, this was where De Niro got his big break? Um, what? <laughs> it, it was one of the uh, weird character choices, I think, uh, having him. Yeah, and I, I wonder if that's one of the scenarios where an actor, I mean, I'm sure we could probably just look this up. But I'm sure it's an instance where an actor just wants to work with a director and, um, you know, a parts like they just kind of get worked in. Um, and also a decent, I mean, using a, a big name actor like that in a smaller part is also kind of a great way of making you think differently as you're watching the movie because you're kind of like, all right, well, that was Robert De Niro. When's he going to show back up in this right. movie? And then when you see him kind of like swoop in and like and save the day, you're like, ah, okay, okay, yeah, now I get it, now I get it. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, wait, no, hold on, where'd he go? Is was he real? Like, was he actually there? And I think that was the other thing too. Like, was how much of what we saw was real? How much of yes. what we saw was um, was Lowry? <laughs> awesome. How much was was Lowry like making everything up? Um, or not making everything. I'm sorry. Like daydreaming, yeah, daydreaming, yeah. or you know, in his head. Um, how long was he actually sitting in that right thing, being tortured? You know, I think that's uh, it would be would be interesting. But even outside of that, he he was definitely having very weird dreams since the beginning of the movie. So yeah, even if he wasn't being tortured the whole time, was he just actually you know losing his mind slowly throughout the movie? And right. And uh, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I um, <laughs> sorry. Every time I say Lowry, I think of I think of the movie um, Bad Boys, when um, uh, Martin uh, Lawrence Martin Lawrence keeps saying Lowry, Lowry. <laughs> I, the whole time the other movie, that's all I kept thinking of. <laughs> sorry, that was just uh, that was a stupid, stupid thing. <laughs> um, the uh, yeah. So, but going back to the the torturing, um. So there are two people that we see throughout the movie who are in that scene at the end. Um, one is Jack, his friend Jack, and the other is Mr. Helpman, who is aptly named Helpman. Oh, at the very end. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and Jack is played by fellow Monty Python uh, member, Michael Palin. Yes. Uh, who was also in the very beginning of the movie as one of the central service guys cutting open the hole. You couldn't see his face, oh. but I, you could barely see the side of his face, but I could hear his voice, and that was totally Michael Palin. Department of Works up here. Be careful with those bloody things. Um, which is a very 
it would be interesting too to see. I don't know the other um, other than well, I've, Graham Chapman I think was dead at this point, um, and John Cleese would have stood out like a sore thumb. Yeah, he was um, not in this. But I don't know Terry Jones's face well enough to pick him out. I thought for a second he might be the other guy in the Central Service thing. I'd have to look up IMDb to see that. But um, uh, with the hats. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I and I wonder if Michael Palin was playing somebody else in the movie too. And that, I mean, that's very a very. And I didn't see Terry Gilliam. I don't know if he makes cameos in a lot of his movies. Um, I mean, he might have been somebody in there, and we just didn't notice. Uh, but uh, and Mr. Helpman was um, was Peter Vaughn. Yes. Who plays Uncle Alfie in Death at a Funeral, one of my favorite movies, and is easily in one of the. F- funniest scenes in that film uh again gotta watch that movie if you have not but he was also uh master aemon in game of thrones where he also was with jonathan price oh my gosh yeah as the high sparrow ah see you totally forgot he was in game of thrones too that's right although and they're never in the same scene so i gotta tell you when i saw him in game of thrones the first thing i thought was <laughs> oh my gosh is the guy from tomorrow never dies <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I feel like any British show, but they weren't in, they weren't in scenes together. In no, that, no, they uh, weren't. I mean, they were in the same. Actually, they may not have even been in the same. Well, I don't want to spoil Game of Thrones, so I'm gonna stop talking. Ah, uh, I don't care. Who cares? Uh, yeah, but even the name Helpman seems like that's a very odd name to like help man. Like that was his name. Yeah, it was a little. He was also kind of providing help. Like, sort of. Well, I mean, Sam had to get help from him, right? To find Jill. Uh, but that that also kind of made me wonder. Then, like, is he imagining this name? Like, does this person actually exist? Um, was Helpman his father? Yeah, you know, a lot. Of, it reminded me a lot of, uh, especially by the end, of um, American Psycho. Have you seen American Psycho? Yes. So where, and then Patrick Bateman is kind of like, did, you're watching, you're like, did all of that happen? Right. Did he imagine it? You know, and again, that's the whole point. I think that's just the whole idea is to leave you... You know, you walk out of the movie and you have no idea what just happened. Yeah. And that's kind of good. I think, you know, we anymore we get out of Hollywood is kind of like it's all wrapped up. It's a clean ending. Right. Everybody kind of wants that to feel happy at the end of the movie. But some of the best movies, you don't have that. It's kind of ambiguous. It's up in the air as to what exactly was going on. Um, yeah, this movie kind of, uh, you know, it starts off and it has... I don't want to say a comedy feel. It has a comedic feel. Yeah, by the way, in the last episode of the of the podcast, we watched Harold and Maude. Uh, so I've never seen this movie. Hoping you weren't going to bring this up. Jim goes, uh, this, yeah, we'll watch Brazil, and it's definitely a comedy. It's definitely much more a comedy, like a straight-up comedy than Harold and Maude. This is not. This is way more dark. This is a lot darker than Harold and Maude. Harold and Maude, I would consider more of a comedy than this movie. Well, I would say the first half of this movie is is a comedy and then kind of from the second half on it gets dark pretty quick and like the final 
few scenes. I mean, the final scene is just like horrific. Uh, I mean that baby mask thing. Yeah, that was pretty creepy. That's dark. Um, and the, you know, there's a couple like terrorist bombings in this movie, but the, I think the last, and hold on, not only are there terrorist bombings, but the, you see pretty graphic wounds that people have from this thing. I was going to say the, the last big one, the one that's in the like store. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, that one was like, there's body parts everywhere and like skin coming off. Um, not something you would expect from a Terry Gilliam movie. Normally. No, it's exactly what I would expect I would from a not. Terry it's, Gilliam movie. No, not not like I would expect it in like a slapstick sort of way. But I mean, uh-huh. these, I mean, it was gruesome paired with those like weird uh, monster things that were crawling around. They look like spiders with like drapes over them. Oh, yeah, that was weird. Who? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't I, even know what that was supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, reminded me of the Skeksis from Dark Crystal, which Adam I've never has not seen. seen. Yeah, I've never saw that. Maybe next week. I'll have to put it on. That's not a Criterion collection. It should be. Jim Henson should be. All of his movies should be in Criterion. The fight scene uh, with the big samurai. I know. Yes. Uh, the where in which um, he pulls the mask off. And it's his face. It's so it was right from Empire Strikes Back, which came out before this. Yeah. So uh, I, that's a total, totally steal that from from Empire Strikes Back, which is which, which I thought was kind of funny. You know, there's uh, a weird scene where he's taking the subway. I think home. I think it's the subway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the men were sitting, and there was one woman who was standing. Yeah, and she had one leg. And she only had one leg. Yeah. I don't know if that was supposed to be some kind of statement. Like, first of all, if there's a woman standing, you should really be offering your seat. Secondly, she only had one leg. You should mm-hmm. really be offering your seat. But they were all just sitting there. I don't know. There weren't a lot of women in this movie anyway. No, there weren't. I counted, I counted three women who worked at the ministry. Uh, one was a receptionist or typist. She was transcribing the torture. Mm-hmm. The other was a janitor. She was buff- yeah, buffing, she was like the, buffing floor. the floors. Yeah. And then the woman who operated the elevator. Yep. Those were the, th- the three. Other women. than that, the women were his mom, the his mom's friend, his mom's right. friend's daughter, obviously Jill, um, and then the, the wife of uh, uh, Mr. Buttle. Yeah. And then a background cast and right, stuff like right. that. But no lead. I mean, other than Jill and um, his mother. That was really it for Lee right, and right. The, the friends. Yeah. Oh, we forgot to mention his, um, what was the, uh, the guy, his boss at the very beginning was, um, what's his face from, uh, oh, Lord Ian Holm. Ian Holm. Yeah. Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins. Yeah. Yes, sir. Or spoilers. If you've never seen, uh, dang it. What's the name of it? <laughs> the movie about Jack the Ripper. Uh, oh, from, from hell. hell. Oh, that's a good movie. I like that movie. Johnny Spo- Depp. Spoilers. He's Jack the Ripper. Oh, dude. I just said spoiler before that. So. Well, okay. Um, so another point I noticed at the end, and the end credits are going, the uh, score of the film was done. Should, I feel bad now that I said that. Yeah. What do you want to do? Maybe we'll we'll bleep, bleep that out. No, we won't. All right. I'm not doing that. That's way too Cover your ears. It, uh, that's it's too late. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They heard already, Jim. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Um, yeah, so uh, Michael Kamen was the uh, composer for this film. Michael Kamen. 
who so I know Michael Kamen, who Michael Kamen is more so than I probably should, because uh, my dad was is into this band called um, the New York Rock Ensemble, which was a band in like the sixties and seventies, led by Michael Kamen. They've only put in a couple albums, but he ended up going on to be a film composer, uh, and I think he won an Oscar. I forget what he won an Oscar for. Perhaps Brazil. Uh, no. Oh. Uh, but he did do uh, two movies off the top of my head that I know he did. He did the entire score to all the Lethal Weapon movies. Wow. With Eric Clapton. And he did Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Ooh. Kevin Costner. Two great movie scores. Uh, uh, in uh, Brian Adams. What? Do that. Brian Adams. Yeah. Do what? Robin Hood. No. Didn't he add some... No, yeah. everything no. I do, do it for you. Uh, that was not in the movie. Oh, uh, that was totally in the movie. No, it wasn't. Well, it was tied to that movie. Whatever, but it wasn't on the soundtrack. It's not part of the. It does not appear at any point. It's in not Robin. in the score. Stop trashing Robin Hood, Men and Thieves. Oh, I'm not uh, trashing Men it. of Thieves, whatever the hell it was called. Prince of Thieves. It was a good movie. Good theme. No, I agree. Um, some other good uh, poster slogans, by the way. <laughs> since I wrote down so many, power today. Pleasure tomorrow. I don't know. Speaking of posters, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Trust in haste, regret in leisure. I, I don't know what that one means either. Uh, and then uh, one of my favorites was the Consumers for Christ at Christmas time. I like that one, yeah. The At the very end, I think it's when he's running away from after he sees Harry get swallowed by the paper. Yes. There's a sign that he walks by that says happiness. We're all in this together, which is what Harry says at the beginning of the movie. He says, like, don't worry, kid, we're all in this together. So that's what I was. Mm. That's really where I was like, oh, is he really believe? like, is this all real? Like, is Harry was Harry ever a real person? How long has he been right being tortured? Harry was literally lost in the paperwork. Ooh, I wrote yeah, that down. that's really good. I yeah. like that. I was while that was happening. I was wondering how he filmed that. I was wondering, was it filmed in reverse and then played forward because the paper was flying towards him and sticking to him? Well, that's just they were cutting. I'm pretty sure I saw some wires in there and in one scene. Uh I'm not going to be picky for a 1985 movie, but there were definitely two You're being scenes, picky for definitely also two scenes I saw that were, I, I swear they were edited in reverse. There was one scene where they were coming up to that roadblock and uh, there was like a second, second and a half clip mm-hmm. where they showed the roadblock, but all the signs on the wall were read backwards. Um, and then when they showed it again, it was, you know, the other direction. Right. And then there was a scene where he is at the party. Sam is at a party with his mother and he's looking in the mirror and he briefly sees all those monsters um, that aren't really there. Mm-hmm. And if that clip actually like it played forward and then backwards for a second. Um, hmm. Yeah, I wonder if that was done on purpose. I don't know. It kind of made me feel like they messed something up in editing and they were just like, well, we need another second clip. We'll do uh, that. Well, Yeah. No, I don't know. I wonder if it was just done to kind of mess with you in, in the sense of like it not being real time or that is imagination. Oh, that could be. 
I don't know. Uh, you know, there was another little foreshadowing thing I wrote down where it was kind of right before the whole scene with the parcel. Um, but it's when Sam is with Jill and she tells him, she says, you've got no sense of reality. Christ, you're paranoid. You got no sense of reality. Hmm. Yeah. So that could be maybe at that time it wasn't actually happening. And like his mind is telling him you have no sense of reality. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, I, um, you know, he is daydreaming a lot. He is dreaming of that stuff happening. So I just wonder how much of that stuff is really in his head. And too, when his, um, that part where he's goes to the funeral and he looks and his mom is also his the face is Joe. Like I'm, I wonder if that's what his mom looked like at one point. And that's what he's thinking. Maybe he saw a picture of her and he's just because that's that's when I saw that. I was like, oh, yeah, no, now everything makes sense because she's like having the surgery to kind of make her face look younger and younger and younger. And I just kind of felt like. So Oedipus, he's the guy who loved his mom, right? In like mythology. Well, so Oedipus was there was a um, oracle who said that to the king and the queen that their son would uh, fall in love with the mother and kill the father. So they cast Oedipus away. He ended up coming back through that kingdom, falling in love with his mother, who he did not know was his mother, right. and killing his father, who he did not know was his father at that time. So, but yes, you're... And saying. Icarus was, was the, the one wings. with the wings. And in this movie... Sam has wings all the time and mm-hmm. he's like flying up by the sun. I don't know. Nah, I don't know. The Icarus isn't really a great, uh, isn't really a great analogy to this. I don't know. Uh, the Oedipus more so. How about maybe. Ziggy Stardust? Because he did have that weird, like, bolt it was the on 80s. his. Ziggy Stardust was Everybody from the 80s. put face makeup on? Uh, I mean, just go back and look at some 80s stuff. I also thought for his daydream, like, that was the best hair he could come up with in his daydream. Like, He's making himself like he's thinking of himself in the best way possible, and that I don't know. That hair was still pretty weak. I don't know what to. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't have good hair. I never have. Well, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think that's it for this uh, episode of Criterion on the Couch. I feel kind of bad. I feel like we're not doing this movie justice, but um, no, we're definitely not. Uh, it's. I think it's just there was a lot of scenes I felt that were. I don't want to say filler, but to me, they didn't really drive the movie. It, it was like, especially the first half of the movie, I feel like there's so much just to set up the fact that he's in this dreary, uh, very monotonous job that like, you don't really need that. Like, yeah, that gives you a sense of like what the world is like in this movie. But mm-hmm. I don't like, they spent about five minutes in the hallway when he gets his new office just showing like, hey, look how long this hallway is. Look, there's people off in the distance walking around. Doesn't matter. But I feel like there were a lot of scenes like that. So it, it just kind of, I don't know, kind of zoned out for a little bit uh, in, in some of those scenes. Also, the audio was very inconsistent. It was. It was It was kind of hard to follow. The speech points. was quiet. The effects were super loud um and it has that like 80s feel where when things explode it's a whole lot of treble 
no bass. Uh, you know, glass shattering is very it's all about tinny. the all about the treble. Uh, it, it is all about the treble, um, which we had plenty of treble in this movie. <laughs> all right, so uh, something to point out. Uh, Adam pointed this out to me. There is a 94 minute, I believe, alternate ending on disc two, which we did not watch, um, which was supposedly the happy ending. Uh, I I don't think we have another 94 minutes in us. That would put this movie close to three and a half hours. So uh, I think we'll stick with um, the original as intended. Any final thoughts? No, I don't... uh... I don't have any thoughts at this point. So I think that wraps up episode four of Criterion on the Couch. If you'd uh, like to uh, follow us on Instagram, we're Criterion on the Couch. Twitter, we're Criterion Couch. Uh, or you could find us on Facebook at Criterion on the Couch. Yeah. And uh, for our next episode, we're going to be watching the classic Alfred Hitchcock film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Oh, the biography of my life. <laughs> No, uh, I haven't actually seen it yet. So maybe let's No, And this is the, uh, of course the one that's, so there are two different versions of the man who knew too much. Uh, and this is the one that's in the criterion collection, which was the original Alfred Hitchcock one from 1934. Sweet. So, uh, join in next time and, uh, we'll see you then. All right. Goodbye.